Our scripture passage this morning is from Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The word of the Lord. Yeah, so I mentioned a couple of months ago an article uh, written by my uh, favorite New York Times columnist, David Brooks, uh, that was entitled, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Now granted, it's a provocative title for sure, but he summarizes what he sees as the problem for modern families in this way. He says, the problem is, is that we've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which only give the most privileged people in society the room to maximize their talents and expand their options. Brooks's point is very simply this, is that you don't have to go back but really a century or so in our own nation's cultural history to find out that the way in which people thought about family has radically changed from now. Uh, and, and I actually don't think I first noticed this until Ginger and I started having children of our own. And, you know, I kind of had a sense of what my job was at the office, uh, but I was always plagued by sort of a latent sense of guilt every time I'd pack up and head to the office every day. The reason is because there would be those occasions when Ginger would have to leave town and I would have to fly solo on taking care of the kids myself. And I just seemed to find that, like, her job was way harder than my job. And, of course, in the midst of that, I started looking at my office as kind of a safe place to hide. Am I right, Yeldon? And so it was some way in sort of a, a, a sharing some of these ideas with a friend of mine years ago when he uncorked what I thought was a fascinating thought. Because he explained, he said, look, Les, prior to the Industrial Revolution, it was very normal in most households to have had multiple generations of women living under the same roof at any given time. Of course, it wasn't just made up a family of husband, wife, and X number of children. There were generations alongside that would help in what is the Herculean task of trying to bring up a family. And for whatever reason, our culture has drifted into what we have now, which is, well, it's different than what we had. Than what we had. So you bring up this sort of conversation at a dinner party, and all of a sudden you're going to watch the sides sort of form, as we are wont to do in our world these days. Uh, the more conservative of your friends are going to step up and say, well, you know what, let's have a family values discussion. Because as soon as we took prayer out of the schools, that was the moment in which our, the, 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 the conservative family sort of fell off to the wayside, or something to that effect. Uh, your other more left-leaning progressives in the room will say something like, well, seriously? You're going to have a talk about the family, those, those oppressive patriarchal systems of the past? Don't you know how abusive those things were? No one can say what a family is anymore. A, a family is any group of people who gets together and wants to call himself a family. And look, I hope you've grown accustomed to me now saying uh, that God's word is neither conservative nor progressive. He is neither Democrat nor Republican. And so just for the sake of discussion, I want you to know that the generation up and coming, however, probably falls into more of that progressive sort of framework of mind. I read one writer who put it this way. 
He said the upcoming generation believe now in the self-made man, the buffered self, the isolated individual. Every man is an Adam who molded himself from the dust, embarrassed by the belly button that bespeaks his dependence. <laughs> That's a great sentence. Choice is the foundation of all moral action, and nearly any act is sanctified by consent, the magic word of the liberal order. But the fifth commandment explodes satanic myths of self-creation by teaching, listen to this, that unchosen relationships have moral weight. Isn't that amazing? Unchosen relationships, just because you were born into them, bear the weight of God's instruction on them. I love that line. The reason is because the Ten Commandments are going to assert that the family, its nature, its structure, its power, all of it is imprinted on your spiritual DNA. Because the Ten Commandments are not just God's ten laws you know, to sort of keep his subjects from getting out of hand. Rather, it's the manufacturer's design for our humanity, the moral arc of the universe, as we've been saying. Think of it in terms of an ecosystem. What is an ecosystem? An ecosystem is a, a biological community of interacting organisms. And you know, in the last 50 years or so, ecologists have discovered that these, these ecosystems can be remarkably fragile in their existence. You can imagine a corporation who finds out that there's a bug that's keeping them from being able to develop their land. And so they develop a pesticide to sort of destroy that bug. But the problem is that bug actually was helping to control another pest, which was worse than the first. In other words, there's this whole chain of interdependent things that make up an ecosystem. And my premise this morning is simply that the Bible teaches that legitimate authority structures, including and especially the family, are as vital to our humanity as those elements within an ecosystem. And almost every bit as fragile. So we tread on difficult ground when we get into our families, do we not? But as usual, God gives us great guidance as a faithful lamp to our feet on how to navigate them. So I just want to throw out three ideas about the family this morning. I want to look first of all at the permanence of the family, the posture of the family, and then finally the power of the family. First of all, the permanence of family. Um, before we get into that too deeply, notice that we've come to a little bit of a turning point in our study. Because the first four commandments deal primarily with our relationship to God, the vertical importance. But our, the last six deal with our relationships to each other, horizontally speaking. A great example is what Jesus, the conversation Jesus has in Matthew 22, 36 and following. When a, uh, somebody comes up to him and says, Teacher, what is the great command, greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now look, do you notice what Jesus is doing there? He's bringing out this fascinating feature of a Christian worldview by saying this. Love for God necessarily precedes every other priority. It's rooted there. The vertical precedes the horizontal. This is why C.S. Lewis would go on to talk about the importance of acknowledging a God-centered life if you're ever going to understand what it means to be a Christian. 
He says, when we have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall learn, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. But insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving from a, to a state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but rather increased. Now, I've actually done versions of that quote before, so I don't think that's a big mystery to you. But what I do think we also tend to miss, though, is that when we say that we love God, invariably it has to come out in a love of neighbor. Invariably. There is no such thing as concern for God that ignores the complicated relationships with other people and other human beings. As a matter of fact, the Bible will even evaluate your love for God by the way and the manner and the quality of your love for the people around you. You could even understand how seriously you take your relationship to the invisible God by how you deal with the complicated nature of the visible relationships you have here. This is what John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 is saying. If anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen, he cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you see the connection? They can't be torn apart. So what does that have to do with the fifth commandment? Well, I would say that you ignore the deep personality-forming power of the family to your great peril. I think that's the lesson. Any change in this great central element of your spiritual ecosystem, honestly, it has the power to throw almost the entirety of the rest of your life into dysfunction, does it not? This, I think, is what the command means when it encourages us, encourages us to honor so that, quote, your days may be long on the earth. It's actually Paul's quote from Ephesians 6, 3, when he says, this is the first commandment with a promise. And it's not saying that, you know, the good kids live a long time. What it's saying is that when a society honors legitimate authority, it flourishes. It thrives in a way in which that institution is threatened. And I said this a little bit last week, but it's worth saying again. Aren't you amazed that this makes it into the same list as murder and adultery? Which, which means that a society that encourages the dishonoring of legitimate authority will eventually morph into something that is every bit as cruel and tyrannical as a society that encourages raping and, and pillaging. Family, family, even though it's so frustrating, and so frustrating that honestly, there's a temptation just to walk away from it, is there not? To abandon it, to bury it deep. To ignore it. And you don't realize, your life sneaks up on you, does it not? You can look back and realize family resentments can go on for decades in the life of the average person. But look, the structure of the Ten Commandments themselves are telling you that when you try to ignore this soul-shaping reality of your family of origin, you not only threaten your apprehension to the relationship of your, of your family, but you do to your relationship with God. It's all so interwoven. I realize that for many of you, you're still angry at your parents. And what's interesting is, I've listened to your stories, and honestly, you probably had a good reason to be so. But here's the thing. You have to realize that as long as hatred and resentment and bitterness define that relationship, 
your parents will still continue to control you. I heard one minister years ago who was talking about taking a uh, sort of a neighborhood canvas where they were going to invite uh, people to vacation Bible school. <laughs> and on one door that they knocked on, there was a man who answered and said, there is no way I'm making my kid go to vacation Bible school because you want to know why? My parents made me go to those things all the time and I hated it. Slams the door. The pastor said that as they walked back away from the house, they thought to themselves, isn't that interesting that with all that resentment built up, they're still controlling you. Because suddenly, you're not going to allow your children to be exposed to something that might be a blessing to them. All because your parents are still pulling the strings, aren't they? So it doesn't matter whether you had a wonderful family or one that you can't stand, that family imprints itself on us and they cannot be ignored. That's what I mean by the permanence of the family. Secondly, though, I want to look at the posture of family as the second point. Uh, because the key to unlocking this command is that word honor. Uh, and on this case, it's actually good to know what the Hebrew word is behind that word. And it's the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod, when you literally translate it, simply means to add weight to. The Bible says we are to give weight to our parents, heaviness to our parents. And what that means is, is that the voice of our parents always has to be taken seriously. They always have to have a voice. So the purest breach of this is to write your parents off. That's the purest breach of this. And so I found it interesting. Every commentator that I consulted agreed that there's so much wisdom in the Bible here because the command is not given to obey your parents, nor does it command us to be thrilled with our parents at all times. In other words, the Bible doesn't root this command in our affection for our parents. Now, look, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait a minute. It does say obey your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And that Ephesians 6.1 that Paul says later on. What's interesting about that word, though that word translated children there, means little children. Okay, so do you see the Bible's nuance? Early on in one's upbringing, the Bible's command to little children is to do whatever your parents tell you as long as they don't ask you to sin. But here's the deal. As you grow up, there's a real sense in which it would be wrong to obey your parents at every turn. Absolutely it would. Why? Because here's the deal. And children of parents, which is everybody, in your best moments, your parents were raising you to leave them. Again, it's very hard in the midst of all the emptiness syndrome, which, by the way, lives in my house terrifically. It's very easy to forget Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and cling unto his wife. Our children are raised to, to leave us. They go out into the world. They move out. They go do those things. But if they're still dependent on me, I missed something in that upbringing, did I not? In other words, I think there's just as much pathology in a family where you're so dependent on your parents for approval and relying on them Every bit as much as those who live in an open defiance of them. And so the fifth commandment comes along and says, honor them. For the rest of your time, as children of your parents, give weight to their words. Doesn't mean you accept it all, but it means I give weight to it. I consider it. I think actually there's this sort of strange connectedness that families have. Because if you think about it, every parent is themselves a child. Your parents made an equally powerful imprint on you 
every bit as much to the degree that you will on your children. Which, by the way, that one little notion alone should free you up, shouldn't it? I had a friend of mine who used to say, Les, get over it, man. Your children are going to have to forgive you for the way you raise them. Full stop. <laughs> no matter what kind of parent you were, that cannot not happen. And so what happens, what that means then, is how I learn to honor my parents is going to come out a lot in the way that I parent. You know this intuitively, don't you? And I think what's fascinating about this is that one of the ways in which we know how to honor our parents, when the way it comes out will say, well, do I know how to little h honor my children? I think one of the best questions you can ask as a parent is this question of, how do I honor my children? I think you honor your children by making your goal in your parenting to simply know those people, to know them, to, to investigate them, to work against the, 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 the impulses inside of my heart that want to freak out at the slightest mistake that they make, to lighten my touch on them enough so that I don't put any impediment in the way of simply enjoying their presence before they slip through their fingers and go to this place called Ole Miss. My children are three miles away from my front door, and I'm still suffering from it. Ugh. Look, here's the point. I don't think children are clay to be molded. They're not enemies to be tamed. They're not projects for you to manufacture. They are people. How is that manifested in our parenting? One last thought before we move on to the last point. I do think it's important for every Christian to remember that as we honor the family, we also honor the God behind the institution who made the families of the earth. And this is the reason why Christians have historically understood that this command is not just talking about mommies and daddies and children. It's also talking about all human authority, whether it be municipal or federal, governmental, whatever. Christians have always seen society as essentially being a family. It's always been the way we look at it. The family of God, of course, is the body of Christ, the, the church. But Christians within that civil society, influenced by Christians within that culture, seek to mirror on earth as it is in heaven and end up seeing their neighbor as their brother and sister. That's a Christian notion. That we look and say these governmental authorities that are there behind all human societies are there and can be honored as them. What that means then is the Bible looks and says, you are therefore to continue to give weight to those that are set in authority over you. Christians are constantly being encouraged to be productive members of the human family, whether someone names the name of Christ or not. And in that notion, by the way, you can find a great incentive to serve. Can you not? Uh, there's a great old story that I looked up from uh, that happened in 1884. A Scottish minister by the name of James Wells told a story about a little girl, a small little girl, who was walking down the street carrying a rather large baby with her. And uh, there were some gentlemen standing around her and watched her struggling with a rather heavy child. And uh, they looked at him and asked her if she wasn't, you know, sort of uh, struggling and wasn't tired from carrying him. To which she looked up allegedly and said, no, he is not heavy. He is my brother. A hundred years later, the Hollies made a hit song out of it in the 1960s, right? But what's the idea behind it? That I can serve one another better when I look at you as if you were a part of family. 
And God granted us that. That's a Christian notion. So the permanence of family, the posture of family, finally, I want to finish with the power of the family. Because look, let's be honest, families are hard. They're difficult. And there's a thousand questions that race through our minds as soon as you even say the word family. I mean, how do I love my parents when I feel like I'm in, in a battle with them all the time? How do I deal with my parents who feel like they're always belittling and trying to manipulate me? What are my responsibilities to my aging parents as they grow old? And honestly, those questions have got to be worked through with your conscience as you let this command percolate through you. But I do think that it's, it's important for us to remember that because our parents represented God, they really are the ones who set the ground of reality for you. When they approved of you, you felt approved. And so we're dependent in strange ways, oftentimes driven to achieve because we're still trying to show them that we can be good. For some of you, workaholism and, and, and marital problems will go back and be traced to a root within problems in our family. And so I think what we have to establish is that whether you had great parents or terrible parents, the only way ultimately to honor them is to know that it's only your heavenly Father's approval that really matters. Look, no parent has ever perfectly loved their children. Therefore, every single person comes into adulthood feeling they've not been properly loved. Everybody. But here's what Jesus says. He says, through me, you can have perfect parent love. There's this wonderful scene where Jesus is speaking to his father in the upper room prior to his crucifixion. And in John 17, he says, The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, so they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You see what Jesus is doing fundamental to Jesus' invitation to the world is to draw you into a family. I just want to ask a very unpresbyterian question. Have you experienced the affection of God as being an adopted child of his family? Have you experienced that? Have you, can you point to a time in which your heart was overwhelmed by the unconditional love and acceptance of a father in heaven through Jesus? Has that come upon you? Because if you haven't, you're probably never going to grow up. We ne we'll never leave our parents. And it doesn't matter whether you're 9 or 90. Your parents can still control you. If you had good parents and you're still idolizing them, and not being willing to ask questions that maybe, just maybe, they might have sinned too? Or if you had horrible parents, you can continue the rest of your life being bitter and weeping over the fact that you can't accept yourself because your parents didn't give you the kind of love that you needed. Either way, our families scream to us that we need another family. And the radical claim of Christianity is, is that your creator can be your father. And because he's your father, he's a good father. And because he's a good father, he can bring healing to a fractured mind, to a fractured family, and yes, to a fractured society. Because he made a promise that he would and could. Christopher Nolan's epic movie, Interstellar, has an ex-scientist, engineer, and pilot, played by Matthew McConaughey, 
right, all right, all right, who quietly farms with his daughter, whose name is Murph. But devastating sandstorms have uh, ravaged the earth's crops, and the people of earth realize that their life on earth is coming to an end because of the lack of food. And the only way to save the world is for McConaughey to lead a group of astronauts through interstellar space travel and find another habitable planet out there in the universe. The only problem is, in order to get there, you have to travel at light speed. So it takes a week or so of a mission for Matthew McConaughey is decades for his children left back on Earth, including little Murph, his daughter. But there's a mishap on the mission that means that as he's traveling through light speed, he makes these attempts to try to get back home, and he can't. And through this interdimensionality, he starts to watch his children grow up through another dimension, trying to contact them, to, make, to speak to them in literal voices. Meanwhile, the children think that the voices behind the walls are just ghosts, but not Murph. Because so many decades later, after Murph is a very old lady on her deathbed, Matthew McConaughey finally makes it home, still as a young father. But as he approaches her, he walks up to her bedside and he says, It was me, Murph. I was your ghost. And the old lady in the bed looks and says, I know. People didn't believe me. They thought that I was making it up all by myself. But I knew who it was. Nobody believed me, but I knew you'd come back. And in tears, Matthew McConaughey says, how? How did you know? And she said, because my dad promised me. And he ends the scene by looking down at his daughter and he says, I'm here now, Murph. I'm here. But don't you see that it was the knowledge that her father had made a promise to her that one day he would come and draw her back up into the bonds of family, that even the, 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 the constraints of space and time itself couldn't even break down. That gave her the strength to go and to move on and to take up her role in the family of God. One theologian put it this way. He said, because the fifth commandment is the heavenly father's word to his son, Israel, it is ultimately about the father and his eternal son who lives as the true Israel to redeem Israel. So the fifth commandment not only assumes a certain order in society, it unveils for us the inner life of God. The son honors the father, trusts the father, submits to his father, hears his father, gives the words of his father weight, submits to his father's discipline. But this isn't the end of the story. Because in the same moment, the father turns the tables to glorify the son, honor him, and listen to his prayers and pleas. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying that what a Christianity promises is to be caught up in this extraordinary exchange between a daddy and his son, between a father and his daughter, to draw up into himself all of his people in family love. And so God comes along and says, I'm going to draw you through there so that every Christian can say, like it says in Psalm 27:10, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. The power of family is that we are drawn into God and his father, his, the God the Father, and Jesus, his son, into an eternal dance of joy. And that's what empowers us. 
to muddle into our own families and love each other maybe just a little more. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Father, how it would change the dynamic in our families. How it would change the dynamic in our families if we knew that that was really true. Father, if we had experienced it as true. If we knew that you were the one who came down not just to deal with us in a purely transactional way, but to draw us into a place. Father, that's our promise. And we pray that when we come here on Sunday mornings, we might hear that voice more clearly. That you do call us, that one day you will bring us up. One day you'll come back and be a part and, and finish this family, what you've begun in it. Would you do that? Well, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.